Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brand, and today is a fun interview. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Paul Saladino. You may have heard of him. He is a guy who wrote a book called The Carnivore Code. Mark Sisson did the foreword for that book, and he is really, really shaking things up, and I'm super glad that somebody like him is pushing, pushing, pushing this conversation to the mainstream because Lord knows we need it, and Paul is here to help us do that. So without further ado, let's dive in to this podcast all about him and his trip to Africa and much, much more about the carnivore lifestyle. If you need help clinically, check out my site, evanbrand.com. Would love to help. Enjoy the show. Man, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Evan. So my first question is, did you did you ever go into clinical practice and then you decided that you wanted to be like the carnivore guru spokesperson? Or did you just go straight from medical school into the carnivore deal? Or, or how did this happen? It all happened in parallel. So I was... Um, you know, I was doing residency at the University of Washington, and it was during that time that I kind of thought about animal-based diets and thought about paleolithic diets a little differently and cut out a lot of the plant foods or all the plant foods in my diet for my own eczema. And so I was in residency doing clinical practice there, and then I um, finished residency and had a virtual practice, kind of a virtual I want to say um, root cause based practice as a physician. And then I've continued to maintain that with a small select group of clients. But most of what I do these days is writing and thinking about things and researching and podcasting and debating people whose views are different than mine respectfully, but you know, trying to share the different perspectives on things in hopes that, that these ideas which I believe are fairly unique, will be helpful for people in their own lives and improve their quality of life. That's amazing. Well, I found you through the Mercola interview, which was just amazing hearing your experience out in Africa. I often dream and fantasize about going there myself, but with a wife and two young kids under five years old, logistically, I think it'd be a little hard and I'd have to leave them behind. So maybe I'll wait till they get a little older, but I got to live through you and I watched as many... Whether it was Instagram posts, videos, stories, podcast, anything, man, I just sucked up every freaking tidbit that you shared. And I was just fascinated. And I really just feel sorry for Americans because we're so lost. We have no idea what the hell we're doing in terms of happiness and fulfillment. And pretty much my vibe that I got from you and your experience with the tribes is they're not really striving for happiness. They're not looking for it. They're not trying to figure out how do I do it? How do I get there? They're just freaking there. They're just happy. It's totally true. It's, it's an incredible thing. And I talked about this on, on those podcasts with my buddy, Anthony Gustin, who I went to Africa with. And it, it, that was one of the most profound things that I think both of us learned from that experience was that by being, and this is going to sound woo-woo and cheesy, but it's just true. It's the truism, even though it's cliched. By being in nature, by living in a way that very closely, not exactly, but very closely resembles how humans have lived for millions of years, these people find themselves in a position where the default state is happiness and joy and levity and playfulness and health and, you know, just satisfaction and calm and wanting for nothing, but essentially owning very little. There's, there's really no such thing as ownership in these tribes. 
they all have a bow, which they make for themselves from the wood that's in the environment around them in the bush. Like they own very few, if any, material possessions like we would consider in the Western world, but they are rich beyond measure um, just in terms of the quality of life and the ease with which they move through their life, both from a food gathering perspective, though that's becoming a little bit uh, difficult and we can talk about that because their lands are being encroached upon, but they have, they have exemplary health and they're just happy. They're not looking for anything. And it's not that they don't know. The Hadza certainly know there are other ways of living. You know, we arrive and try and be as respectful and least encroaching as possible. And the, the visitation of people like myself and Anthony or other, quote, tourists actually helps support the Hadza because the government in Tanzania realizes they're valuable and has therefore made laws to protect their lands. But um, they see us with cell phones and we take photos and they know there are other tribes around them who are, quote, more civilized, which may not be a good thing, who are doing pastoralism, who are raising goats and who are, you know, tilling the land and growing corn. And they are so prescient. They are so aware that they say, we don't want that life. They could easily walk out of their camp any day. It's not that they don't know how to walk out of their camp. And some Hadza do. But there are about three to 400 of the Hadza who have chosen to continue living as hunter-gatherers and hunting for the majority of their food, gathering fruit when it's in season. We can talk about what they eat. And they are consciously choosing this every day because they, they've realized that this is something that is basically written in their book of life and they are so content and so happy doing it. It's really beautiful to see. It's pretty incredible. With Americans, basically the permaculture deal is is the cool thing. Now everybody wants to have land. They want to do the goats, the chickens, the ducks, and every and everything, which I'm all about. I, I love it, but I still don't think we're ever going to get to that level of contentment you're seeing with the tribal people. So I'm wondering what you've taken from that. Is there anything that you're trying to do now besides like put your bare feet in the dirt and you know take your shirt off more? What else can you do to try to tap into that? I feel like there's literally a genetic switch. There's a, a, our DNA is programmed to do what they are doing and part of our anxiety and our depression and our lack of fulfillment and our seeking the latest iPhone to think we're gonna be happier, we're missing that genetic switch and you found the switch, you were there, you saw the switch working in action. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that we do the best we can, right? You're in Kentucky, um, I spend time in Austin and Costa Rica and wherever we are, I think humans need to look for all of these things. They need to look for um, wilderness, they need to look for community, and they need to find meaning in what they're doing. And we need to try, and this is where all of this started for me as best as possible, to align our diets with what our genetics are expecting. And But you bring up this great point that our genetics are expecting a whole lot more than a species-appropriate diet. A species-appropriate diet is what's very interesting to me as a physician interested in biochemistry and nutrition. But what I discover along the way is that our genetics are also expecting sunlight and movement and dirt and air with plants around and, you know, all of these sorts of experiences. And so I think that it's, these are the things that we remind people of and everyone does it within their own boundaries. I mean, even in New York City, you could find little micro wilderness in Central Park. And perhaps if people are realizing this, they will incorporate it into their decision-making if they have the opportunity to move somewhere else. I mean, there are lots of places in the U.S. that have large areas 
um, that are like this. And I think that we just need to realize this is a piece of who we are as humans. And it starts with diet, starts with the species appropriate diet, and then it continues to a species appropriate life. All these other things that we're talking about that the Hobbes do. And I think the first step is knowledge. It's awareness. And if you realize, like you're bringing up, oh, maybe one of the reasons that I feel restless or not fulfilled is because I'm not doing these things enough, then we can start to make the decisions and the choices to do them as much as we can within the constraints that we have. And we do the best we can. I think that even little baby steps will have massive impacts in people's lives, both in the dietary sphere and in the lifestyle sphere. Agreed. There's a book, I haven't interviewed the author yet, but it's called Nature Deficit Disorder. And I, th I forget the name of the author, but he also wrote another book called Last Child in the Woods. And he talks about how basically... I mean, you, I mean, you may be a little bit older than me, but basically, I mean, we were some of the last generations to really grow up outside. I mean, I was basically locked outside, not by force, but by choice. And I didn't come home until it was dark and I was in the woods all day and playing in the dirt and it, it felt right. And then when I got into the early teenage years and like the Nintendo came out and then it was the Nintendo 64 and then it was the PlayStation 1 and then the PlayStation 2. I mean, every generation of gaming consoles has just separated us further and further. And now I see some of the teenagers I have as clients who are 15 and they probably, I mean, I, I, not probably, they would not be able to identify an oak tree if they were in a forest. They couldn't tell you what an oak tree versus a maple tree was. It's, it's pretty crazy which direction things are going. So I'm hoping that with you and your podcast and videos and everything that you're sharing that people are picking up on, hey, wait a second, there's actually a reason for this. We don't need to just go take the L-tyrosine to boost dopamine and take the 5-HTP to boost serotonin and take these lion's mane mushrooms for the brain. No, we've actually got to tune into something that's been lost. And so tell me about Costa Rica. So what are you doing down there? You're just living, working, doing the same thing, or are you doing something different that you can't do in, in Texas? So I went to Costa Rica in February of 2021 when there was a big storm in Austin. And I was on my way back from Tanzania. I'd spent two weeks in Africa living and hunting with the Hadza. And I, I just knew that I wanted somewhere warm because I like to surf. And so I kept hearing about this town in, uh, on the Guanacaste Peninsula of Costa Rica and so I went there, expecting to be there for seven or eight days. And I ended up staying for two months, and it's really been quite life-changing because it was exactly what we're talking about, especially coming from Africa and having all of these concepts fresh in my mind. There is a, a phrase that I've used in my social media to try and make this more approachable to people, and it's the idea of the remembering. And you even said this a little bit, you know, remembering where we've come from as humans. Uh, how we lived, how we ate, how we interacted with human, uh, other humans in our tribe. And when I got to Costa Rica, it was my version of the remembering. It's, it's a town, uh, it's a small town on the coast with amazing waves and warm water. So I have things that I love to do in nature that challenge me, that put me in a flow state, that put me in a little wilderness in the ocean. And then there's jungle, you know, to be in all the time. It's not very developed. It's a little bit developed. I have access to grass-fed meat and organic uh, fruit, but... There, there, there's not a lot of development there. There's not a lot of concrete. There's a much slower pace of life. Every time I pass someone on the street, I say, hola. You know, everyone talks to people, talks to each other. It's such a smaller community. 
Um, you know everyone in town because it's a tiny space. You see people driving down the one road in the middle of town, which is a dirt road. You see people walking and it's just, it's this more of a village vibe. So it's, for me, it was, it was really a realization that, hey, this is a special place. I love to surf and I think it's okay as humans to have something. I think it's actually vital that we have something that we love that puts us in the flow state, especially if it's in nature. And for me, that's what surfing is. And I'm a pretty mediocre surfer, getting better gradually, but it's been amazing for the last two months in Costa Rica to surf every single day, to wake up before the sun, to be in the ocean at sunrise, to surf every single day, to fight the things I'm scared of, to, to go on bigger waves than I want to or that I thought I could make, and then to, to gradually grow and to push myself, to push my body in nature, and then to be in an environment that is so um, really pristine in so many ways. It hasn't been farmed, it hasn't been monocropped, there's nobody spraying pesticides everywhere. It's not paved. There's no paved roads in the town. And people are just living these lives that are focused on really a more of a village mentality. It's not perfect. There's nowhere perfect in the world. But for me, it was my personal version of this idea of the remembering. And it was my personal really window that I was gifted into how I can best live in this way. And so I'm going to be spending part of my year every year in Costa Rica. And I'm not sure how much time I'm going to be there in this town, but I'm going to be there, um, you know, a part of the year every year, spending time in the ocean and in the waves and the jungle. And eventually we'll see what comes of it. You know, I, I think that perhaps in the future I'll be inspired to build something to bring people down there, like a retreat center or something else. But for right now, it's just kind of me building a community and having my own sort of um, my own space where I can explore these things. And the reason that's important is because I feel like it helps me be the best version of myself. Believe me, Evan, every day I am reminded of the importance that the work that you and I do, because there's so much misinformation out there, and the work that you and I do to correct this misinformation is very hard. And so it's really encouraging, and it really bolsters me to have a space where I can feel alive, where I can feel nourished as a human being in my soul, and be in the wilderness, and be in the ocean, and be in the sun, and that gives me the battery power, you know, that gives me the power, the energy that I need to do this work, to come back every day and do the work to, to really share the message in the most clear way that I can, that I think will be helpful for people and help them improve the quality of their lives. So it's like, I think that sometimes within the United States, we feel like it's selfish to take care of ourselves and nothing could be further from the truth. Like if you're not the best conduit for whatever it is, love, care for your family, you know, creative decisions at your job, then, then we're selling ourselves short. And so I love um, the idea of really focusing on ourselves to be the best version, whether it's father, mother, brother, sister, whatever, you know, me as like a, a speaker, somebody that's trying to share information and challenge the mainstream medical paradigm about human health. So that's what Costa Rica is about for me. Well, I got to get down there. It sounds like my staff member who she's a functional medicine practitioner too, she's been down there and she said, Evan, I don't want to come back. And I'm like, well, you work virtually. That's fine. You don't have to. But she ended up coming back to Texas anyway, and she's ready to get back down there. She had a kid, but otherwise she'd be back down there. And what she told me too is that it's, I don't remember exactly how, I may be paraphrasing, but she said that these are like old school humans, essentially. Like they're not like Americans. I mean, I have clients in Costa Rica. I've had clients in Ecuador. I've had clients in Brazil they are a different breed of human in the best possible way. It's almost like 
they're the era of my grandparents from the 1950s where it's all about saying hello and greeting others and just respecting people as much as you possibly can from the start and there's no judgment and there's no maybe there's less gossip there's less less intensity they they just tread more lightly on the planet and that's kind of what i took away from what you said too is that it feels like there are still some bubbles maybe everywhere can't be like east africa and maybe everywhere can't be this tribal vibe but you mentioned the village vibe and maybe that's the close second that we can still strive for i just feel like for you, I'm just curious how, how you think you're going to do long-term. I mean, Austin is a cool place. I used to live down there myself, but man, that's like culture shock, isn't it? Coming back from Costa Rica and Africa. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely culture shock. Everything feels a little bit concretified and a little bit manicured. Um, people are not quite as open and friendly and that's just culture. It's not the quality of the people. It's just as humans, we do what the, the tribe around us does, and it's a, much, it's a much more disparate, separated tribe here in Austin. So it's been a culture shock, but that's always instructive, I think, for me. And I think that the goal in the future will be to bring as much of Costa Rica back to the States as I can. Ultimately, you know, I think the United States is an amazing country, and we enjoy incredible freedoms. And it's where I'm, I was born and where I'll always be a citizen, but... There are so many places in the world that can teach us a lot, and we need to not forget that. But I would agree with you 100% that sometimes Costa Rica, and especially these small surf towns on the West Coast, feel like they are um, they're, they're going back in time to a time when things were a little slower and humans were a little more able to really treasure each other. We've lost so much. I mean, we've lost a lot in the last 70 years as humans, I believe. And I think that we've been sold a bill of goods, uh, trading so much of these supposed uh, progressions for actual real separation from other humans that don't make us happy. Um, I think there are some benefits to technology, but it's a, definitely a double-edged sword. And being in places where things are a little simpler is, is quite nice. Now, I will say that I appreciate having internet in Costa Rica because it allows me to do my podcast from there and to connect with people from all over the world in Costa Rica. So I am using technology there, but there are other things about being there that definitely feel more, more simple in, in a very good way, and I love it. I mean, and the land is, is really sacred and, and really fertile. Um, you, you'll drive down the street, you know, in some of the, the hills above this town where I live, and um, you'll drive down the street, drive down this dirt road, and you'll see these, these saplings or these, these kind of branches from trees that have been planted in the ground as fence posts. And I've never seen this in the United States. And I don't know if it's the actual tree species that does this or a combination of the tree species and the soil fertility. But these, these cuttings, these branches from trees that have been planted in the ground as fence posts are growing into new trees. So these fences are made of rows and rows and rows of, of these sapling trees that are growing as these fences are growing into trees. And you think, this is what life is supposed to be. This is a fertile soil that hasn't been monocropped. You know, they're usually grass feeding and grass finishing cattle on these soil, making the soil very fertile and, you know, mimicking an ecosystem in the best way they can. And we can talk about that as well. But it's really cool to see how abundant life is there. There's life everywhere. There's, the trees are green right now. It's the rainy season. There's fruit on the trees and it's, there's life everywhere. It's abundant. And even the fence posts are growing in the trees there. It's incredible.
That's amazing. I mean, I guess the only thing here we would have close would be cedar trees. You know, a lot of farmers will do cedar trees, rows of cedar as a fence row, and those grow, but they don't have much value besides a windbreak. And like you were talking before we hit record, maybe you're dealing with some slight cedar fever. Beyond that, there's not too much benefit to those type of trees. Yeah, I think these are these are non-invasive species that are in Costa Rica, and they're just cutting and making these fence posts. But it, it does speak, I think, to the fertility of the land, and there's a lot of life there. For sure. So do you write your own emails? Because I really enjoy them. I don't know exactly where I signed up to get on your newsletter. It was probably on your supplement website, but you had one with the subject line recently, Senor Marijuana, and you had this whole story about the drug dog sniffing your bag and they thought you had weed, but you just had organs. I absolutely loved that email. Do you write those yourself? I do. It's kind of a fun thing to be able to, to write those emails. I, I never thought that I was a writer. And when I wrote my book, The Carnivore Code, I discovered that I really enjoyed it. I still have a lot of improvement to do in my writing, but it's fun to tell little stories of my travels and pieces of my childhood in the newsletter. And yeah, people can sign up for that at heartandsoil.co. And yeah, I was coming back from Costa Rica recently, and this, you know, Costa Rica, it's Central America. It's pretty safe. There are a lot of um, amazing things about it. And I'm sure there is some drug trafficking that's unavoidable. And they had this drug dog walking through the airport and the dog got to my bag and was very interested. <laughs> and the guy that, you know, the, 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 I guess the drug enforcement agent in Costa Rica was saying, you know, fuma, fuma marijuana. Like, do you smoke marijuana? Have you been around anybody smoking marijuana? I said, no, I don't smoke marijuana. I, I haven't smoked since I was in college. I mean, it's been a long time. And I was like, yeah, go ahead, look at the bag. And he's not gonna find anything. And he says, what about CBD? And I said, no, I don't use CBD either. I sleep pretty well with the way I currently live and eat. And what they found was, because I'm traveling, and I do this when I travel, I had a glass container full of about a pound of ribeye with some liver. And I think organs are super important. That's why we built Heart and Soil, which is my supplement company. And the dog just was going crazy. And I wanted to feed the dog a little bit of the steak and the guy wouldn't let me, but he eventually was like, okay, I guess there's nothing here. I mean, he searched through my whole bag. There's nothing in there except steak and liver, which anyone that has a pet knows that if you put those foods in front of them, they will, they will go crazy because they understand the nutritional value of these foods. That's hilarious. So... <laughs> Uh, are you traveling? These are always raw, right? I remember Anthony during the interview you all were doing together. He was kind of like laughing slash halfway disgusted with your, I think you brought a liver that ended up being like fermented by the time you got to Africa and it was like a week old or something. Yeah. So when I eat organs, I like to eat them raw. There's always potential dangers of this. You know, I can't recommend it to everyone, but it's something that I've really enjoyed I've found raw liver, and I always source from grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative farms to be really good. And so when I went to Africa, I had about a pound of liver in a jar, or a little less than a pound. And I thought, well, I also brought, because I was going to Africa for a few weeks, I also brought desiccated, so freeze-dried supplements of organs that we make at hardened soil. But I wanted to eat the fresh liver for as long as I could, and it kind of became this game that the liver just got more and more fermented. And I'd heard about this in circles. People talk about high liver or high meat, which is fermented meat, fermented liver. 
And it got to the point where I just thought, you know what, I'm just gonna keep eating this liver fermented more and more and more every day. And yeah, after two weeks, I think it took me two weeks to eat that fermented liver. And by the end it was completely fermented and it's not a smell that any of us in the West have ever encountered. I still was able to eat it with no adverse ramifications at all. But I was also glad that I had brought some of the desiccated freeze dried organs when the fresh liver ran out. Um, but getting organs in my diet is a priority for me. I think it's something that's been left out of the nutrition conversation in so many spheres, even in the paleo sphere, I've never heard much conversation about organs. I'm sure it's something you talk to your folks about, but in the broader paleo sphere, I haven't heard many people talk about organ meats, liver, heart, spleen, kidney, pancreas, those type of things. But when I was with the Hadza, man, they eat the organs first, just like I had imagined and read that they would. If you look at hunter-gatherers, they always eat nose to tail. They don't just kill an animal and eat the tenderloin or eat the backstrap and then just throw everything else out. They eat every single part of the animal. The only thing they don't eat is the lower intestines, which they give to the dogs. But they will eat the stomach, they will eat the kidney, they will eat the pancreas, they will eat every piece of that animal. They will eat the brain, the heart, the liver, and they understand that these things have unique value for them. And when you ask them, they can say that over hundreds of generations, they've realized that if they don't eat these organs, they don't feel as good and they're not as fertile. And they have all these traditions. I mean, you can look across hunter-gatherer tribes. Organs are uniquely regarded as beneficial for humans and certain organs are given to men and women if they're hoping to conceive or if they're sick or if they need more vitality or whatever, but they're used as really the most sacred part of the animal because they're, they're a little bit more rare than the meat. And so we, we hunted with the Hadza, we killed a baboon, which is something that will offend many with delicate sensibilities, but it's just how this tribe in Africa lives. And the first thing we did was eat the organs and share them as a tribe. And that is a happy group of hunter-gatherers when they're eating baboon liver and baboon heart and baboon lung and kidney. And the next morning we got to their camp and they, they, were, they were roasting the skull over a fire and I ate baboon brains. And every time I talk about this, people are like, what about prions and aren't you gonna get sick? And if you actually look at it, there are no recorded cases of prions moving from uh, primates to humans. It's, it's mostly hearsay and wives' tales. Um, there are no recorded prion diseases in baboons ever even doing anything uh, similar at all. So it's, it's, and the Hadza do it every day of their lives. And so you think, you know what, this is what I wanna do. I wanna get fully embedded, I'm gonna do this. And if I were to ever get sick, it would be part of the experience. And I am not going to, um, especially traveling all the way to Africa and being with these people, like the brain is very nutritious. They treasure the brain. Uh, primarily because it's quite fatty and I, there was no way I wasn't gonna eat that brain and I haven't had any uh, ramifications of it since. So if you know, maybe in six months if I start drooling and the quality of my podcast declines, I got a prion disease, but it's never been documented. Anyway, the importance of organs is, is tantamount and uh, is, is paramount and um, you know we, we can't ignore it. And a lot of people may hear me talking about organs and think I would never eat that. And I heard that over and over as I got more interested in eating organs from like my mom and my sister and other people I knew. And so that was why I built Heart and Soil, which is the company, my company that makes these desiccated organs that makes it so much easier. But it's so interesting to see that, and we get these emails hundreds of times a day from people, just taking a capsule full of freeze-dried, which is a great way to preserve the nutrients, organs, can be the spark that just the first domino that tips people because they feel it. They feel something, they feel better when they get these unique nutrients. And our goal is just to provide an easy first stepping stone for people 
and they can feel a little better and realize, aha, uh, now I should make all these other dietary changes and lifestyle changes and really proceed on with all of the changes in their life that are going to help them be so much better. But yes, that's a long-winded way of saying that I did bring a jar of fermented liver to Africa and it was amazing. That's incredible. So, I mean, you look at the fertility issues we have now, you see stuff about sperm counts going down. Pretty much anybody who knows anybody, they've had miscarriages. My wife and I luckily had no fertility problems at all. It was literally like, hey, honey, your ovulation's tonight. You want to make a baby? Yeah, sure. And then boom, that's how we did it for both of our children. And it worked perfectly. And I don't say that to brag, maybe a little bit, but really just to say that like when you're fueling your body, there's not a fertility crisis and you see all these in vitro fertilization clinics. They're paying 10, sometimes $20,000. We've seen some of our friends go down that rabbit hole. We've tried to push them towards organ meats and towards just simply getting a full complex B vitamin. I mean, just very simple stuff and they just won't do it. They'd rather just smoke a cigarette, drink a Mountain Dew and pay $20,000 to get IVF. And it just blows my flipping mind because the mainstream world is not talking about this. These fertility doctors should be selling organ supplements. Instead, they're selling these shots that you're doing every day and these hormone therapies. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. I wonder what we would find out if we were to get people on. That'd be a cool study. Get people on, like, a, like an infertile person, get them on a bunch of organs, and then retest hormone levels. Look at testosterone, look at estrogen, look at sperm quality, sperm quantity. Have you seen anything like that? Does anything like that exist? Well, no, not a formal study, but we've, I've, I've, I've heard that multiple times from people. I mean, I got an email a few weeks ago from a woman who is a, who's a functional medicine practitioner, and she has a couple she's been working with who tried everything for fertility. They tried Chinese herbs, acupuncture, in vitro, everything. And, you know, howling at the moon, you know, uh, doing handstands, whatever. And they, they did two things. They started taking organs and they chose desiccated organs like we make it hard in soil and they started an animal-based diet so they cut out a lot of the foods that i think could also be triggering issues for humans they basically started doing a, a diet that consisted of a lot of good quality meat and desiccated organs and then what i would consider to be the least toxic plant foods and lo and behold they conceived and you hear this over and over and over i actually did a little mini podcast on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health, on fertility recently because one of the guys on my team here asked me, he said, you know, I have so many women friends who are worried about fertility. And it's interesting because even in Costa Rica, I've had many conversations with people who, who say, you know, young couples that I've met there and the woman always says, what about fertility? Will eating a diet like the Hadza or an animal-based diet help me with fertility? And my answer is I really believe it will because it eliminates a lot of the foods that can be problematic and it puts in so many of the nutrients that people are missing. But if you dig into the fertility and infertility research, you don't have to go very far. Even a quick Google search or a quick PubMed search will show you multiple papers showing that nutritional insufficiency and underlying autoimmunity, two things that thinking about your diet and moving more toward an animal-based diet can fix these are the leading causes of infertility. And like you said, the tragedy is that so many people won't, won't make these lifestyle changes. And I think that's just human nature that we have to feel something. We need that spark to feel something to actually change the way that we behave as humans. And for some people, they just, they won't do it or they don't believe that it's the answer. But I think so much infertility would be helped by adding organs and taking out many of the most toxic foods, primarily starting with things like seed oils, 
corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, and processed sugar. But then I think there's also people who react poorly to vegetables. And that's a very controversial part of my message, but it's one of the things that makes what I'm saying quite unique. Well, I never go towards organic steamed broccoli and eat it and say, wow, that broccoli was like so fulfilling. If I have a ton of grass-fed butter on it, I'm really content. But if it were just broccoli, I'm probably not going to eat it at all. And, you know, when you walk around the woods or the jungle, this all becomes pretty clear. I, I posted on my Instagram the other day a picture of me jumping off this waterfall in the jungle in Costa Rica, one of the other benefits of being in Costa Rica. And as I was walking to the waterfall, I was just, I was seeing all these plants in the jungle and jungle's a very, very green place. There's green leaves everywhere, but it, it's just kind of written into our psyche as a human that that's not food. I wasn't getting hungry walking through the jungle, seeing all these jungle leaf plants everywhere. If I walked by a guy with a steak on a barbecue, I'm going to do the whole like, it's going to make my neck work, man. I'm going to look and be like, whoa, that looks good. But I'm walking through a jungle. If you go walking in the forest outside of your house in Kentucky, you're not like, man, all these trees are making me super hungry. I just want to take a maple leaf and eat it. Or this oak leaf looks good. Or man, that, you know, that, that cedar, I'm going to go munch on some cedar leaves. Like there's just not a whole lot edible in the plant kingdom. If you think about it, 99.9% .9 of animals are edible for humans, but less than 20% of plants are edible. Meaning that like more than like more than 80% of plants will cause massive GI issues, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or kill you if you eat them. Plants are defended. Not all parts of plants, fruit is a different story, but plant leaves and stems and seeds, you gotta think these are plants, these are plants sort of like arms and legs and babies. So an animal doesn't want you to eat its arms and its legs or its babies, but it can run away, it can defend itself. It hasn't had to develop other defense mechanisms, but plants are stuck in the ground. If plants had legs, they would be running away from us everywhere and they probably wouldn't have as many defense chemicals in them. But it's not, really, it's not really radical or even conjecture to suggest that botanical science has told us for 100 years that plants have defense chemicals. And in broccoli, there's defense chemicals that are intended to prevent iodine absorption at the level of your thyroid. These are isothiocyanates. And you can detoxify a little bit when you cook it, but it's still there and it's not great for you. And so if you're out hunting with a Hadza, and they see a broccoli, brassicas don't grow wild in Tanzania, but theoretically, if they see broccoli and they see a deer, they're not gonna stop and eat the broccoli, they're gonna go hunt the deer. They, the Hadza, our ancestors, hunter-gatherers invariably do this. They think about hunting 24 hours a day. They dream about hunting. They use animal meat and organs as the main food in their diet. It's the thing that they want to get all the time. It's the most precious thing, it decides the uh, reproductive success of a male is how successful as a hunter he is. And the health of their children is directly tied to how much meat they can bring back to the tribe. So they're not celebrating when somebody goes back and brings, uh, brings a tuber. They're like, oh, okay, we'll eat this tuber, it's okay. And interestingly, with the tubers, they spit most of the fiber out. It's not even digestible. It's nothing like a sweet potato or a white potato we have in the States, which aren't very good raw in the first place. But these tubers are chewed mostly for maybe a little bit of starch and mostly water, and all the fiber gets spit out. They're so fibrous you can't even eat them. But if they bring back a big kill, an eland, for instance, which is a thousand kilogram impala, like a big, big antelope, the tribe has a party. They break out the instruments, they party, 
They sing music and they eat that thing for two or three days until it's all gone. They don't stop doing, they stop everything and eat that food. They celebrate animals. They don't celebrate tubers or broccoli. So there's clearly a hierarchy of foods within hunter-gatherer culture. And like I said, this culture is probably the best living representation of the way we've lived as humans. Not perfect, but a very good window. They're a time machine. Just like Costa Rica's a little bit, like a 50-year-old time machine. The Hadza are like a 30,000-year time machine. And again, they're not perfect. They're sullied a little bit by Western influence, but you can tell the kind of foods that they treasure. And they don't treasure plant foods like they do animal foods. They'll eat some plant foods during times of scarcity and starvation. They generally want honey and tubers and fruit. They don't eat a lot of vegetables. They don't eat a lot of plant leaves unless they are really, really low on food in general and don't have much at all. So that's, that's really been the focus of my work, helping people understand that, hey, animal foods are what we've always sought as humans. They've been incorrectly vilified by badly interpreted mostly observational science that doesn't actually show how valuable they are for humans. They are full of unique nutrients, especially the organs that are critical for fertility and vitality and libido and good body composition and mental clarity. And yet mainstream medicine says they're bad for us. What an evolutionarily inconsistent thing. Don't forsake eating animal organs and meat because you think you must eat that salad that makes you fart, that gives you GI issues, that gives you bloating or that give, makes you break out. There's so much of an interesting hierarchy here in terms of plant foods versus animal foods that's been lost. And that's what I'm trying to help people understand. And then even within the plant kingdom, you don't really want to be eating a lot of plant arms and legs and babies. You don't want to eat a lot of stems and leaves and roots and seeds. Seeds are the most highly defended parts of plants. That's a plant baby. That's why a raw bean will cause you to vomit. <laughs> They're so highly defended. So many digestive enzyme inhibitors so many things in there that are trying to prevent you from eating them that we've ignored based on really poorly constructed studies. It just makes sense when you think about it evolutionarily and you dig into the science just a little, you'll see, oh, beans are full of lectins, which can be problematic for the gut. And then all these seeds cause so many digestive issues because they're full of digestive enzyme inhibitors. And the nutrients that we think are so valuable in those foods are present in larger quantities and more bioavailable in animal foods, especially meat and organs. So there's really a lot of clarification that comes from thinking about which parts of plants are really trying to get eaten, and it's really mostly the fruit, um, and which parts of plants they don't want us to eat, and then digging a little bit into all these defense chemicals, and then understanding, oh, wow, I don't really need to eat kale. I don't really need to get gas and bloating or issues from these vegetables if I just eat the foods that our ancestors have always sought, that we know in our core, in the deepest regions of our brain, we know these are what we're seeking. So it really turns a lot of contemporary nutritional paradigms on, on its head. It's amazing. And I could just listen to you talk about this stuff all day. I'm really enjoying this. And even some of the, quote, advanced or more functional nutrition courses I've taken, it was very vegetable heavy. And it was pushing five, six, seven, eight servings of leafy greens per day. And I tried it. I went down the vegetable rabbit hole. I was still obviously eating animal protein at every meal three times a day, at least, if not a snack of a grass-fed beef stick or something. But even then, I would do these leafy greens and it didn't matter if I cooked them, I steamed them, I sauteed them, I stir fried them. I did every freaking thing I could. I put it in the smoothies and I despised it and my gut never felt great. But you go back to these quote functional nutrition courses and it's all you need X amount of kale because of this and you need arugula because of this. And I'm like, no. And so 
clinically, I went from telling all my clients to eat all these salads and leafy greens and make sure it's organic and whatever, to now I literally tell them I could care less if you eat leafy greens. I can't tell you the last time I had a leafy green and my gut feels a thousand times better than it used to. And all of my clients are shocked and some of them have even like questioned me like, Evan, didn't you get a nutritional therapy certification? Aren't you supposed to be promoting me to do X amount of servings of organic veggies? And, I, and I'm like... Well, I'm just telling you what I do personally, and I rarely eat a, eat vegetables, and if I do, they're covered in probably a grass-fed butter or ghee, and that's just an excuse so I feel better about myself putting something green on my plate every so often. There's so much, there's so much propaganda there, and you even said it. You feel guilty not putting something green on your plate, but I'm here to tell you, you don't need to feel guilty about that. So on my Instagram, which is at carnivoremd, there are a couple of testimonials that just happened in the last week. Chad Mendez is a really well-known MMA fighter. He fought Conor McGregor. Um, he fought Jose Aldo. And he posted about his psoriasis on his legs, which was profoundly bad. Psoriasis is a scaling, patchy uh, condition that's pretty itchy and uncomfortable for people. And he went on to an entirely animal-based diet. So he did just meat and organs and fat. And in two months, anyone who goes and looks at his Instagram or my Instagram where I reposted his will be astounded at how improved his psoriasis is. But if he talked to any of these traditional functional medicine practitioners, they would never have told him this was even an option. And I'm not saying everyone on the planet needs to stop eating all vegetables. What I think is important with this message is to really share the idea that if you are not thriving, if you have autoimmune diseases or low energy or obesity or low libido or poor sleep or mood issues, consider the possibility that the foods you are being told are the most healthy are potentially not that healthy at all. And by this, I'm referring to vegetables. And if you are struggling, if you are without hope, turn everything on its head and think about what I'm saying here with Evan. And Evan's experience too corroborates this. Make your diet more meat, more organs, either fresh or desiccated and cut out those most toxic vegetables. You can still include some plant foods, and I have a whole infographic people can get that talks about what the least toxic plant foods are, and we can talk about that as we wrap up or whatever you want, but that, I think, that simple transition is profoundly healing for so many people. We see improvements in infertility and mood stuff and psoriasis, my other friend today. So here in Austin, there's a guy, really well-known guy in the ketogenic space, Logan Sneed. And, and he had a glioblastoma multiform. He had a cancer that's usually fatal in his brain and he's young and he's done a ketogenic diet after that and it's kept the cancer in remission. But he just sent me a message today with two pictures of his hands. And he said, Paul, I didn't think carnivore or an animal-based diet like you're promoting was a good thing. And I was doing keto and eating tons and tons of vegetables all the time and my psoriasis stayed bad. And I never thought about what it was. And then I thought, heck, why is my psoriasis so bad? I'm just gonna do an animal-based meat diet with organs and whatever, right? Just, just meat and organs. And he said, in five days, my psoriasis is better than it's ever been in its life. And these, you can see the pictures of his hand, they're striking. And so this is a really counterculture message, but I think it's really important that we share it with the community and as widely as possible. Vegetables are not an essential part of the human diet. Roots, stems, leaves, and seeds, these things don't wanna get eaten. You can get all the nutrients in there in animal meat and organs. And if you want to include plant foods, there are much less toxic parts of plants, which are generally fruit. That's why they're brightly colored. That's why plants want you to see them and eat them. Or things like honey, you can include all sorts of things like this so it's not 
only animal foods. But that type of a diet is what I call animal-based or straight carnivore works for people as an elimination diet. But you see incredibly striking transformations. So many diseases that doctors say, your psoriasis, Chad Mendez, your psoriasis, Logan Sneed, these are never going to be fixed with diet. Your inflammatory bowel disease, right? Your Crohn's, your ulcerative colitis, your Hashimoto's thyroiditis, your depression. I had eczema myself. Your eczema, Paul. This is nothing to do with diet. And then people change their diet and these autoimmune conditions get better like that. This is what we're talking about. And we need studies. We need bigger controlled studies. But the amount of testimonials and case studies and anecdotes now is overwhelming. It's in the tens of thousands. It's something we can't ignore. And it really challenges a lot of this mainstream thinking that just eat more vegetables. Yeah, I should really connect you with a guy named Dr. Dannenberg. He's a periodontist. He came on my podcast. He's in his 70s now, I believe. He had stage four multiple myeloma, which I interviewed him about. He thinks it was from all the mercury exposure playing with mercury in dentist school. And he... He, he says flat out carnivore basically put his cancer into remission. So I ought to connect you to, I think he'd be a great podcast guest for you. And he would love to kind of tie the gap between dental health and carnivore because he's just seeing major, major strides in his dental patients with carnivore too, which is duh. That's the same thing Weston A. Price was saying a hundred years ago. So uh, it's, it's really common sense. You're right that it is controversial what you're saying, but it's really not. It's really just common sense. And it's just going back just a few generations. I mean, I talked to my grandfather about his grandfather's farm and they were mostly carnivores. Yes, they did have a little bit of maybe some corn and some other vegetables, but even on the farm, they weren't hunter-gatherers. You know, we're talking very early 1800s. Their meal was a pig, it was chicken, it was beef. It was all pastured and the animals roamed in on 350 acres in Kentucky, and they were 100% pastured. They never had grain. They didn't need it because they had the pasture. So, I mean, even just a few generations, you don't even have to go back the 30,000-year history, just a 100, maybe. And, and you're already so much closer to where you want to be or where you need to be. So I think that this is the time where this is going to catch on because people are so... People have to hit rock bottom before they're ready for this message, and I think... I think now is the time. I mean, look what COVID's done to people. I think for the first time, mainstream has finally acknowledged, wow, as a country, we're super friggin' sick. I think finally people are miserable enough. So I think you've come on to the scene at the perfect time, at the perfect intersection of American misery and health catastrophe, that I think now is the time for, for carnivore to really take the mainstream. I think the only pushback you're going to get, obviously, is from Bayer and Monsanto because they're not going to be able to sell as much glyphosate if they're not spraying that on all the corn and the soybean that people stop eating and that the crops are not being fed to the animals anymore because they're all pastured. So I think beyond industry, I don't think you're going to be facing too much pushback. The interesting thing about this way of thinking, and we could do a podcast that's three hours long about it. We could definitely do a part two if you want in the future if your audience finds it valuable, is that it challenges a lot of the, the mainstream Western ideas People will say, don't you need fiber? And the answer is no, you don't. You don't need a ton of fiber. The Hadza don't need a ton of fiber. You don't need a ton of fiber. Um, if you tolerate fiber, fine, but a lot of people, you don't need a ton of fiber. Don't you need phytochemicals in plants? No, you don't. A lot of these end up in animal meat, actually. you know. And a lot of them are defense chemicals and they're anti-nutrients, which you don't want in the first place. And they say, well, well, well we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do, we can't raise animals this way. And you, yes, you can. And there's what about the environment? Isn't eating all this meat bad for the environment? And I've done tons of podcasts on that. It just, 
it challenges so many of the conventionally held notions. And regenerative agriculture, which is where cows are grass-fed and grass-finished and rotationally grazed, this is carbon negative. This sequesters more carbon into the soil than the cows actually produce. This is the way that we are going to uh, mitigate the rising carbon levels in the atmosphere is by putting more animals on the planet. And then people say, well, I can't afford it. And I say, well, what are you spending your money on? What's more valuable than your health? And there is nothing that you can buy that is dollar per dollar more efficient than meat, especially well-raised meat. If you spend $8 a pound on well-raised meat, that is way more nutritious than a Hershey's bar, which is a dollar an ounce. That's twice as expensive for your Hershey's bar, which has no nutritional value, all kinds of problems with it. So, and then people say, oh, you can't scale regenerative agriculture, which is another fallacy uh, because there's tons of land to do it and you could absolutely scale regenerative agriculture. So I hope deeply that you are right, but every day it's a little bit of an uphill battle that feels very meaningful to me because all of these things are ideas that have been placed into our heads in the American and the Western consciousness incorrectly, and they're not supported by science, and they're just wrong. And if we think evolutionarily just for a second, we understand how wrong all of these ideas are. That red meat can't be bad for us. It's been at the center of our evolution for two million years. It was the single food that triggered our brains to grow and made us human. This is so absurd to imagine that it's bad for us. We must not be confused by epidemiology or observational studies. And we must not fall prey to all of these false, baseless, really twisted arguments about climate change in cows, which have no substance in climate science or environmental science at all. And we must not be you know, misled by all of this rhetoric about you need all this fiber and all this eat the rainbow and all these vegetables. Sure, you can eat some fruit. And if you tolerate vegetables, great. I'm not telling anybody how to eat you know, if they're thriving. But what's really important is that people understand there is another way. You're an example of that. Logan's an example of that. Chad's an example of that. I'm an example of that. There's thousands more people who are saying, wait a minute, our ancestors didn't really eat a ton of vegetables. They mostly eat meat and organs. And they'll eat fruit seasonally and some honey when they can get it. But this is very different than what we've been told. And um, I think that therein lies the secret to human health and understanding what a species appropriate for human diet for humans really, really is. Did you see Joe Biden's thing the other day? I was looking it up. It was like, there's like memes going around it now. He's telling people eat 90% less red meat. And I think he said one burger a month. I'm trying to find the other thing that was on here. It was just actually kind of depressing and halfway comical. And I don't think anyone's taking it serious. There was, so the Biden administration has openly said that they want to improve climate, which is great. I think we should all be thinking about that. And they made some guidelines or some recommendations for how much they want to improve climate, which is fantastic. And then the University of Michigan came out with a study saying, if we want to include, improve climate that much, we should cut our red meat consumption by 90% and people should eat four pounds of meat per year, which is completely absurd, completely absurd. I'm not sure when you're going to release this, release this podcast, but just yesterday I recorded a podcast with my good friend Robbie Sansom, who's the CEO of Force of Nature Meats, a very cool regenerative agriculture company doing great work. And we went to town on these recommendations. These are not the formal Biden administration recommendations, but the Biden administration is not doing much to defend meat. <laughs> and I think that they may recommend something like this in the future, but it caused quite a stir and it was really comical. Um, that would cause a catastrophe in human health. And as we talked about, the answer is not limiting our consumption of beef. The answer is more animals raised properly on the land, 
And the way that we get that is by voting with our dollars. Okay, so it may have been somebody who was just trying to conflate it as saying Biden said it or that that was his recommendations, which is not surprising that it would be a little bit misleading on social media. But I'll have to check out the podcast and we'll link to it for people too, because I think that'll be amazing. So just walk us through like a typical day for you. We did this with Dr. Dannenberg and it was so boring. And that's one thing I want to mention here is that this is so easy. It's actually and me as the main chef for my wife and my kids, it's actually made my life so much better because I used to have so much stress. Like I would take a two hour lunch break from clients. I'd run upstairs. I'd have to cook this. And then I felt like I had to have some rice with it or some sweet potato. And then I had to have some peas or some broccoli or whatever else. And now I could literally just go up there and I could just make a steak and everyone is content now. So it's made my life so much easier. So for people dealing with autoimmune diseases or fatigue or any other problems, if you're so freaking tired that you can't just go upstairs and throw a steak on the grill or on a skillet for two minutes each side and be done with it, then you really need some help. But hopefully you have enough energy to at least do that. So would you just run us through like a breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack for us? Absolutely. I, I generally eat two meals a day. I like to do time-restricted feeding. It's just what works for me. I'll eat breakfast around 8 or 9 a.m. and I'll usually eat dinner at 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, I don't like to eat late because I don't like to kind of interfere with the sleep. I don't like big meals late at night. So I'll usually eat two meals a day. I'm not really a snacker. <laughs> if I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat. And this is just what works for me. Find out what works for you. But both of my meals are pretty similar. And people always say, don't you get sick of this? And I say, no. I've been eating this way for about three years now. And there is not one single meal that I have come to the table and I have said, oh man, another grass-fed ribeye steak. This is torture to eat this. They're always delicious. And I think if anything, this is the clearest indication that as humans, meat and organs are good for us. I've never gotten bored of this, right? I don't use food as entertainment, but every single one is delicious. After we get done with this podcast, I'm going to eat dinner. And believe me, I'm already looking forward to a grass-fed ribeye steak or a grass-fed chuck roast or a grass-fed hamburger, right? I never get sick of meat. And, but many people think you will, and it it's generally doesn't happen unless you are very much using food as entertainment, which is a whole separate situation. People must prioritize and choose what their main focus is. If you're really focused on health, then you, you're not using food as entertainment, and those two are often uh, counterproductive. So in the morning, I will get up and I will eat a pound of ribeye steak. I will have usually some liver with it. I'll have about two ounces of raw liver some desiccated organ capsules. I, I, I'm loving a number of the ones we make at Hard and Soil right now, like skin, hair, and nails. And then I will have a little bit of fruit. And people may say, I thought you were the carnivore guy. Why are you eating fruit? Well, what I found for myself after a year and a half of doing a strictly sort of low-carb, zero-carb carnivore diet was that the inclusion of some less toxic carbohydrates, and I would consider those to be fruit and honey, really improved my electrolyte balance and my sleep, and I thought, okay, this makes sense. I had to think about this. Like, I think ketogenic diets and low-carb diets are very beneficial for humans on a cyclic basis, but generally speaking, if people do ketosis too long, they usually run into problems with electrolyte balance and other issues. If people have underlying diabetes or metabolic dysfunction, definitely do a low-carb version of this diet, and don't eat a lot of fruit and honey like me or Evan, but I'm very metabolically healthy and I've worn a continuous glucose monitor from a company called NutriSense. And you can see that I remain, I remain very insulin sensitive despite eating carbohydrates from fruit and honey in my diet. And I've done labs. My fasting insulin is like 
less than three. My C-peptide is 0.48 or something. It's insane how insulin sensitive I am with over 100 grams, sometimes 150 grams of carbohydrates in my diet every day. So in the morning, I'll usually eat some fruit. When I'm in Costa Rica, it's the best papaya in the world. I may have a little bit of raw organic honey. I'll have liver and I'll have steak with salt on it. And I like, I like a good sea salt. And that's my breakfast. That's what I eat for breakfast. And then dinner is basically a replay. Uh, it's a carbon copy. Um, maybe I'll have a different type of fruit. Um, it depends where I am. In Austin, I can't get good papaya. So I've been eating more strawberries or a banana, uh, maybe a little more honey um, and a steak of some sort with a moderate amount of fat. I don't do dairy and I will do a different organ at dinner, whether it's spleen or heart or kidney or whatever, maybe some different desiccated organ supplements. And the other thing that I do every day now is I eat bone meal. We have a supplement at Heart and Soil, which is called Bone Matrix, and it's microcrystalline hydroxyapatite. So it's really what I believe to be the most bioavailable calcium in a bone. I don't do dairy. Dairy is eaten by some cultures like the Maasai. The, the Hadza don't do dairy. And I've noticed that when I do dairy, it triggers me in terms of my immune system. And so I don't want people to think that I'm saying plants are the only triggers of autoimmunity. Definitely dairy and sometimes eggs can be triggers for people's autoimmunity. So um, and it makes sense because these are foods we may not have had a ton of evolutionarily, mostly meat and organs, maybe occasionally eggs, very rarely dairy. Pastoralism with animal husbandry and milking animals is very recent. So most people do better without dairy, although some people can benefit and even things like colostrum can be really healthy for people if they don't have a problem with dairy. I don't do well with it, so I get my calcium from bones, which is another evolutionarily, ancestrally consistent way to get it because when you're with the Hadza, there's a small bone, they're eating it, right? They get a small animal like a bird, they're gonna eat the ends of those bones. And there's definitely calcium from bones in hunter-gatherer diets, and it's a really good source of other peptides and collagen and growth factors. So that's my diet. It's basically two pounds of meat per day, moderately fatty, fruit, honey, organs, fresh and desiccated. It's simple. I never get sick of it. It's so nourishing. I, I don't really get hungry between meals. I'm always looking forward to it. And if I need to go on a longer fast, even though I'm eating carbohydrates, I am totally fat adapted and can do that no problem. So I think that the only pushback I get on that sometimes people say there's not enough variety. There's a much broader array of foods that I would consider to be low toxicity, um, in the infographic that I have at heartandsoil.co. And it, it makes it a lot easier. If you like variety, if you want to eat chicken, great. Just make sure it's good quality. Fish is fine. Just make sure it's low mercury, low heavy metals. People can eat turkey or bison or duck or goat. You know, there's all kinds of meat that you can eat. Chicken, like I said, is fine for variety. But I've just found that, gosh, a good grass-fed, grass-finished steak is hard to beat. Wow, so you're 100% beef. You don't do any chicken or turkey or duck. I mean, if somebody handed me a really nice duck breast with that good fat layer on it, I would eat it. But I think that in general, ruminants, deer, elk, antelope, pronghorn, cows, bison, when they're farmed, are eating a more species-appropriate diet than poultry. It's pretty hard to find real pastured poultry and I don't like a lot of pork because it's fed grains and soy, even the good stuff. It's really hard to find very truly pastured, quote, wild pork. And I think it's important to know what the animals you are eating are eating. So I want animals that are eating a species appropriate diet. So I like duck. I've eaten chicken maybe once in the last year. 
Um, and it was just with a friend who I was making chicken for. And I thought, okay, I'll eat chicken with you. But uh, generally speaking, I, I think that ruminants, especially cows, are the things we can get the most of in the States, are the animals that are eating the most species-appropriate diet. Well, it sounds like the most important thing for you is to not get bit by the Lone Star Tick. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, for those listening, I, and, you can get what's called alpha-gal. I think, do they call it alpha-gal or alpha-gal syndrome? Basically a red meat allergy. I've got a friend here locally who's a farmer. He's got like 80 acres and one of his best friends, he's already gotten bit by like five ticks this spring, just being out in the out in the woods. It's turkey season right now. So we're all trying to shoot some turkey right now until I think we've got another two weeks of turkey season. So we're trying to get some, but the ticks are just so bad. It's It's almost scaring me away from getting out in the woods and trying to hunt them this year but anyway his friend got the the lone star tick which we're seeing a lot of in kentucky i know they kind of migrated north up from texas and my god if you get that and you got the red meat allergy i don't know what you would do i would be forced to expand my palate and find the best sources of chicken and duck and turkey and that i could and yeah i would still eat meat believe me i would still eat meat and it's a, it's a scary thing. Um, thankfully, I don't think we have the Lone Star Tick in Costa Rica either. So I'll be careful here in Texas. I do hunt here in Texas. Um, and I haven't gotten bitten by any ticks that I'm aware of. But I'll be careful here in Texas and I'm safe in Costa Rica. Good, good. Yeah, please do. I would hate for you to, to lose that ribeye. I definitely share your love for it. Well, we'll let, we'll let people check out your right. website. We'll put all the links there. But it's Heart and Soil which is a cool name, .co. And then also you have your own personal website as well, right? That's where all the podcasts and everything is? Everything is at heartandsoil.co now. So all the podcasts, everything is at Heart and Soil. I really want that to be a resource. We're going to be, we have blog posts up there. All the podcasts are on the website. So heartandsoil.co co is really the best thing for everything for people. We put everything there now. That's great. And you should check out Paul's Instagram too. If you're on Instagram, I believe that's where most of the videos are. I mean, I just really enjoyed, you shared a lot of videos and uh, Anthony who went on the trip with you. I know he shared some videos too on his page. I just love seeing the videos of the tribe. I love seeing everything you guys shared there, seeing the dog picture. It was kind of gnarly. I think the dog got in a fight with the baboon. There was like a big gaping hole in the dog's back. That was, I just love seeing real life. I mean, we're just so disconnected from real life now that uh, that's part of the reason that I do hunt because it really connects me. And to take my daughter with me and for her at age four, to see a buck cut wide open, she didn't react to it at all. That was an amazing thing about having my daughter with me is learning that they don't have a filter that teaches them this is bad or this is not right or this is gory. I mean, I was pulling out the lung. The lung was just disintegrated in 50 pieces from the 30-06 round that I shot through the deer. And I'm like, look at this. Look at his lung. It's turned into 50 pieces of, of lung. And she's like, whoa, that's cool, daddy. And and it was perfectly natural. But I mean, if if I were the typical dad not exposing their kid to that, those kids would freak out and they would, you know what I'm saying? It's just, we've lost our humanness. That's all. And you already know this. I'm just preaching to the choir at this point. But I love it, man. We have. We've lost connection with our food. When when the hunting and harvesting of animals makes us queasy, we are too separated from nature. And um, hunting seems uh, seems overly violent to people until they're forced to live in the wilderness. I mean, the Hadza do this for sustenance, and they are grateful for the animals that they kill. And you, I'm sure, are grateful for the animals you kill, and they nourish you and allow you to do good work that you do. And so 
We should not feel guilty about this. I would actually encourage everyone to hunt as much as you can because it connects you with your food. When you know the story of the animal you are eating, eating food is more of a sacrament. It's, it's a totally different experience. This is the only bad thing. This is just a little, a little miniature rant to you. Even if I wanted to become like a full-time hunter, I couldn't because of the fish and wildlife regulations. We're only allowed two turkey per season. We have 21 days per year to hunt turkey and I can shoot two turkey per season, but I can only shoot one turkey per day. And that's gonna take two separate trips for me to take away from clinic, away from the kids, or if I bring my daughter and we're gonna sit out in the blind for like three hours possibly from, I don't know, 5 a.m to maybe 8 a.m. Hopefully in the morning, a gobbler comes by. We shoot one gobbler. We get the meat off of that one turkey. We're done for the day. Now we got to make a whole separate trip just to get one other bird. It's like, damn, even if I wanted to do this, you can't. Now, deer season is a little different here. You can get, at least in Kentucky, we can kill unlimited deer. You can get one buck per season, and then you can get, I think it's two or three does, but then you just get a new tag. So you could technically get unlimited doe. So it's a little better there, but man, it's like, the regulations got in the way. Now, I know you have to have it because the deer in this state were literally almost hunted to extinction. There was only like a few hundred left. So we technically, according to my buddy who works at Fish and Wildlife, we're in the, the, the good old days now because there are more deer now than there ever have been. There are more turkey now than there have ever been. But man, it's still, it's still challenging. It's tough, man. It's kind of like we talked about at the beginning. I think the important piece is realizing where we've come from and trying to make that a part of our lives as much as possible. It's impossible to get back fully, but even the fact that you're doing that is a step in the right direction. I mean, your daughter is gonna grow up with a really incredible experience. So hats off to you, man. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really grateful for your time. I'm grateful for you sharing your experience. I'm grateful for your podcast and everything you're doing. I think you're a really important voice and it certainly makes me look a lot better when I tell people stop worrying about salad and go check out Paul's podcast. It, it, it's, it's really taken the load off of me clinically and my staff is doing the same thing. We're literally just forwarding people the link and just saying, check out Paul, check out Paul. So thank you for making my job easier. It, it's really uh, a blessing to, to get to talk with you and I hope we can stay in touch. I love it, man. It's been a pleasure coming on and I'm grateful to be able to add something to the conversation. I appreciate your work and, you know, hopefully you and I and other people will just keep, you know, sharing the message with people and allowing them to understand things that'll lead them to really reclaim the birthright that's theirs, which is some pretty profound health. So it's amazing, man. Thanks for the time. Amen. Thank you. Take care. All right, I hope you enjoyed that podcast as always. If it sounded a little bit back and forth, like someone was talking through kind of like a TV interview style where like there was a little bit of a pause, I tried to make it to where it doesn't appear that way. But if it felt a little bit disconnected from each other during that, that's why. It's because we were using a local recording app where we were recording our audio on each side. So there was a little bit of delay, but we tried to buffer out that delay and edit that out as much as we could. But if it sounded a little bit like satellite internet uh, interview. That's why. So hopefully it was still enjoyable and you got a lot out of it. Just a little behind the scenes info. If you need help clinically, please reach out. I would love to help you. This is something we're implementing clinically. I've been going a lot more carnivore-ish with my diet for years, but I'm noticing that even paleo for some is just... It's not enough, and the nuts and the seeds and the veggies in some cases are an issue. I mean, I can't tell you, like I may have mentioned in this podcast... 
I just, I don't do leafy greens. I don't do salads. And I feel so much better without those. And I'm not telling you that's the answer for everyone. It depends on your gut inflammation, your gut barrier, your bacterial overgrowth, or pancreatic elastase markers, calprotectin, beta-glucuronidase, steatocrit. I mean, there's a lot of markers I'm using from a functional medicine perspective to make that judgment call for people which direction we should be going. It's not just this one-size-fits-all approach. And I think it's important to figure out where you are and what you feel best with. And of course, you being the N equals one, right? That's what this is all about. So if you need help clinically, please reach out. would love to help. You can book a 15-minute free call with my staff at my website, evanbrain.com. And in the meantime, take great care of yourself. And if you're bumping up your organs, you're bumping up your good meats, your good fats, consider doing my Pure Digest. That is my best-selling digestive enzyme formula, which was designed for a more paleolithic or carnivore diet. We have betaine HCL, we have ox bile and many other supportive nutrients in there for good fat, good protein digestion. So check it out. It's called Pure Digest. I'll put the link in the podcast app notes there. You should see it. Try it out. It's something I take almost every meal, especially when I'm doing a big old nice, beautiful grass-fed steak. And if I go out to restaurants, I will do the enzyme. We actually added, just for kind of a nutritional insurance policy, we added what's called DPP4, which is a special enzyme that actually breaks down gluten. So if you're trying to stay away from it, you know it's difficult, you may get exposed to it, that enzyme is in there to help you degrade that and reduce your risk of any type of allergenic response. So check it out, and we'll be in touch. Take it easy. Bye-bye.